Good afternoon. It's great to be with you. I'm always impressed when people take time out of a already intense day to spend their lunchtime gobbling on a sandwich perhaps and hopefully doing thinking that might even be more intense in terms of the issues it's dealing with than any other hour that we spend together at university. I'm going to pray. I don't know if you normally pray or not. I'm just going to pray that God would help me to speak truthfully and at least a little bit interestingly and uh, that if there's anything worth hearing that I'm going to say that you'll hear it. Let's pray. Uh, great God, we thank you uh, for places like universities. We know that there are many millions of young people who would love to be able to go to school and to university and are simply unable to. Uh, we thank you for this enormous privilege that we have. We thank you for the brains that you've given to us and we pray now you help us to think honestly. Uh, if there are new thoughts for us to think, old thoughts to get rid of, that you would give us the courage and the clarity to do that. And I pray, God, that you would help me to speak truthfully and interestingly in Jesus' name. Amen. I um, hope that you um, had a bit of a candlelight dinner on Saturday night. We had a candlelight dinner. I think there was about ten candles on the table um, uh, for Earth Hour. And, uh, you know, I, I've done my bit for the environment for the next decade or so now. Apparently I can relax. I feel good about that. I, I, I read the Sydney Morning Herald most days on the net and, um, and you don't get the whole of the paper. Uh, but there were two serious, longish articles. One you had to flick through four pages to get to the end of it on the environment. In fact, uh, a large advertising company that keeps an eye on this great advertising uh, in a recent report said that in the major newspapers around Australia... In last year, there were 11,170 articles on the environment. That's a lot of articles. It's a lot of jobs tied up in environmental journalism. That's 30 articles a day. Now, when we talk about the environment, what it means is that, that totality of circumstances or things that surround an organism or a group of organisms. That's what the environment is. And I think when people speak of environmentalism, they're partly, perhaps unconsciously, contrasting it with humanism where there was a strong uh, movement, particularly in the 20th century, of humanism. We saw man was the measure of all things. And a thing was worked out in terms of whether it was good or bad, in terms of its effect, its beneficial results for humans. So um, I think with environmentalists, people say, no, we need to look further afield, even for the good of humans, but that there are other important things going on on the planet apart from just us. There are many, many, many facets and specialisations within environmentalism. There's, uh, some people are particularly concerned about population, others about biodiversity and loss of species, some about habitat destruction, some about the destruction of forests and rivers and lakes, peak oil, global warming. There's a whole raft of areas that people are concerned about what's happening in the world around us and what are we as humans doing that can either make the situation worse or better Sometimes for the cute and cuddly animals, sometimes just for ourselves, and sometimes for the extension of ourselves into our children. Now, one of the interesting things about this particular area is, if you've studied it at all, you may know that there's some tension in some areas between uh, groups who are passionate about the environment and Christianity. And it struck me as strange when I began to run into this, and I've, I've discovered, I think it's fair to say, the source of this particular tension goes back to an article in Science magazine in 1967 by a man called Lynn White, which was on the historical roots to the ecological crisis. And there was a looming problem back in the, in the 60s. People could see there was 
uh, articles like the Silent Springs and things like this becoming, and really the environmental movement really began to grow and take off in the 60s. And right at the beginning, Lynn White wrote this article, which has been enormously influential. It is the most reprinted article in science magazine's history, and it's an eminent magazine. Let me give you one of these conclusions from some of these last few paragraphs. We shall continue to have a worsening ecological crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for its existence save to serve mankind. So he says things are going to keep getting worse until we reject this Christian axiom that nature has no reason for its existence save to serve mankind. There's a big problem looming and it's only got bigger I think. And now we know the source of the problem. It was Christianity. So now we can name it, we can shame it, and we can blame them, and we at least know where the villains are. Now, even a man like Al Gore in one of his books um, has said that he thinks White has completely missed the point of the parts of the Bible that he quotes. And I think, that's, I think it's fair to say that that's true. When I read the article, I was surprised at just the, the profound study that he'd done, and yet the remarkably simplistic misunderstanding of, uh, of literature which he's involved in. But we at least have a scapegoat. And this, in the early days when environmentalism was growing, uh, it's kind of in the DNA of the movement that somehow or other the fault is the Christian first few chapters in Genesis 1 and 2 and that needs to be overthrown. I'm going to politely disagree with that. I think that's a, a fairly straightforward misunderstanding. Uh, when it comes to God, what does God believe about the environment? We're going to assume a massive question which in some ways I'm happier to answer and more confident to answer uh, than this one, which is how do we know what we're talking about when we talk about God? Which God? Who's God? Which gods? So we're going to have to assume, you're going to have to sort of let me do this otherwise we'll never get to the important area on the environment and come back on another day or talk with me afterwards if you like about how do we know what God is like, the real God, not speculation. Everyone's got their opinions and, and they're interesting. But what Jesus actually claims is, and he makes claims that many of you know no one else in history makes. Uh, he claims that far from speculating meaningfully about God and life, he is revelation. Far from a, a person sitting on the, on the earth looking up and trying to work it out, it is God coming down. Now, you may choose not to believe that, you just may have never thought much about it as yet. But that is Jesus' claim. I'm going to base this conversation on the basis that I think he's right and in a sense I'm going to ask you to sort of take a walk in my worldview for a few minutes but by all means challenge it and think it through uh, afterwards. And one of the things you notice about Jesus is when you read through what the Gospels say about him, it is Jesus' belief that what the Old Testament says, that Genesis and those other parts of the Bible written before he came, is what his father says. So Matthew's Gospel is having an argument with these people and he says this, Have you not read what God says to you? And then he quotes the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis 2, which we'll look at a bit of today. So it's very clear for Jesus, the Son of God, that the place where you hear the voice of his Father is in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Scriptures. And that's the God that we're going to talk about today. I'm going to have to assume that uh, for the moment that that's and that's where we're going to find out about God. Now, there are other views of God, and they may have a different, they will have different views on this question of the environment. Well, let's bounce straight into point 1A here, which is foundations, the obvious introductory foundations about God and the Bible, and God and the environment, and we're going to have a look at Genesis 1. We're going to travel quickly. This is the opening words 
of the Hebrew Bible translated to English. How does it relate to the environment? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Uh, some of you will know, I remember I discovered this when I was at Sydney University, that in the last hundred or so years we've dug up from the ancient Near East a number of other creation stories that other cultures had. Perhaps the most famous one is Enuma Elish. And what we find in that is not one god, but a couple of gods who get cranky with each other, who go to war with each other, who kill each other, and the earth, the actual earth that we live on, is this um, one of the original two gods who's been killed by Marduk and her body has been turned inside out and the earth that we live on is the dead body of an evil goddess. Now, if you just think about that for a few minutes, that will give you a slightly different view of the creation that you live in than Genesis 1 does. Now, both might be false. The Enumeralish might be right. Um, I don't think it is. But what the Bible gives you is a very clear understanding of the world we live in, which actually lies at the basis a lot of, of, of a lot of what is good about Western culture. Uh, that is the view that, that the earth has come from the hand of a God who is good. Now, if you hang around um, the Sydney Morning Herald or listen to the ABC, occasionally as you get very old, um, there's this group of people who they love called the Gnostics. And they always are, actually, Da Vinci, the Da Vinci Code goes on about them. As if there are a really good lot of guys in the church who are a pack of mongrels. And one of the things about the Gnostics is this. They didn't believe that the world was good. Therefore, they didn't believe sex was good. They certainly didn't believe that women were good. The way that you got saved, according to the Gnostic Gospels, was by God treating you as if you were a bloke. That's a marvellous compliment. Um, but... One thing the, the church had to keep fighting was against the Gnostics who took the view that the world would not have been made by God. This world is dodgy, it's got bodily fluids and smells and it's nasty and things rot and go off. But one of the things that Genesis 1 affirms almost uniquely in the ancient world, I think probably it is unique so far that, we've, that anything we've discovered, is that the world came from the hand of God who is supreme and sovereign and alone and he makes it as a great architect and builder and again and again through the story in Genesis 1, uh, he'll say, he did this and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And at verse 31, at the end of the chapter, it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God really likes what he has made. What we call the environment, whether you go right up to the edge of the universe or just in close to the planet, the Bible understands to be handmade stuff from God. Does God believe in the environment? Is the Pope a Catholic? Absolutely. Of course he believes. I mean, it's his idea. And, he, and the question is, what is humankind's relationship in this? And we're told a number of things in the first few chapters that are helpful, but sometimes a little puzzling. I mean, reality is normally a complex business and it's a question of bringing a number of things together and not just taking one little part of it and squashing everything else. There are a number of things said about God's relationship to the earth, to the environment, as we might call it, and the things about humans' relationship to God and to the environment in which we find ourselves. And so I've uh, tried to make that clear by putting it in different colours, in the blue. It's interesting that God, in this story in Genesis 1, makes humankind on the same day as he makes the animals that live on the earth. 
which I think is underscoring the similarity between us and the other animals that live on the earth. Um, but it does also draw the distinction. God says, let us make man, in the sense of mankind, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and that is explained for us, I think, in the next phrase, and let them rule over the fish of the seas. When he makes them, the man and the woman, verse 28, God blessed them and said that they be fruitful and increase in number. Uh, if you've had a little talk with your parents, uh, you'll know that means that's actually an instruction to have sex. So the way that humans actually are fruitful, so, away with any nonsense about, you know, the, the original temptation was to have sex. No, no, no. One of the original temptations would have been not to have sex because they were commanded to be fruitful. And thank God at that stage they couldn't do it through test tubes. It had to be done in the good original <laughs> method. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea. Now, friends, that's the verse that people like Lynn White and others are upset about. The call to humankind to fill the earth and subdue it to rule. And if that was all that was said, you could understand the article. But it is nowhere near all that is said. It also works on a standard sinful misunderstanding of what it means to rule. To rule, when the Bible speaks about ruling, and it goes through this again and again, means to serve. So there are various areas of my life where I am the leader or the ruler. That brings with it no privileges but responsibility. It, to rule is to be like God who serves. It's to be like Jesus who rules by dying for us. It's partly because of our own sickness in our heads that we hear the word rule and think, you beauty, I, I can do what I like. It's helped, I think, by looking at Genesis 2 where the story is of the creation is retold, this time with God, not so much as the majestic, unique, supreme, powerful, grand architect builder, but here God more pictured like a potter or an artisan or even a landscape gardener working closely with the stuff that he's making, breathing life into the human beings. And we're told in verse 8 that the Lord God planted a garden he'd formed. Verse 9, the trees were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God could have made ugly trees. Or, or to express my own aesthetic, he could have made them all cactuses which just don't do anything for me. I remember walking through the Botanic Garden once, I think it was called, like, called Delicianos or something like that, some weird, look. They said, oh, I'd love to see those. And I got there was a blooming cactus garden. And I was very disappointed. But, but God has made trees beautiful and good for food. And here's what he says about the humans. He makes, them, he makes the man. Very important here, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, he's going to make the woman later, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The word to work it is used often through the Old Testament and it's used, it means to serve. It's got a range of meanings like any word has but it's got the notion of to serve. It can be even sometimes used of serving God. That the, the man is put into the garden of Eden, God's garden that he set up, it's very beautiful, in order to work it, to serve it, to take care of it. And the next word to take care of it is, is a very, it's a very, um, it's a tender word. It means to watch over something, to guard something, to be attentive, to cherish it. To, to, to make sure it, it fully functions and flourishes. See, God, when he, when he asks the human to be like him in the world, to be like his vice-regent, he's not saying he can stamp around and smash and cause damage. He's saying, be like me. Care for, tend, look after. 
Now, if you want to rip one word out of context, you can do that, and that has been done sadly over many years. But let's not pretend that Christians have ever thought that was our right, to stamp around the world like some monster, like some Adolf Hitler or worse, smashing things and wiping out animals. We've done that for other reasons. Well, there's the foundations. Perhaps if I could just share... um, there's sort of a summary of some of the material you've got there from Genesis 1. Uh, man is in God's image. There's something about God that we're like. It's not our handsome two eyes or whatever it is or our ears. It's, it's our role of ruling as God is the ruler. Everything is good. Humans are to work and care. The, the surprising foundation, uh, the thing that I think a lot of people never quite can get a handle on until they sort of get right up close to Christianity is um, not only does God make everything, a lot of people have got that. And if you make something, you probably own it, and if you own it, you've got the right to say what happens in it. That's a normal uh, logical progression. But in passages like Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus, listen to what it says about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see what the invisible God is like, look at Jesus. He's the firstborn over all creation. By him... All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him, that's Jesus, and all things were created for him. Now that is a fairly staggering assertion, isn't it? That that man Jesus of Nazareth, whose death and resurrection we celebrate in the next couple of days, is not anything like a great prophet. It is the clear and consistent teaching of the Bible that he is actually the creator. And what are we made for? We're made ultimately for him. Now you can ignore him, you can walk away from him, but you will not find life without him, because that's what you're created for. Which makes sense of the miracles. If he really is the creator, walking into his disordered world, he can and at times does stretch out his hand to fix things. It also makes sense of that insane or wonderful comment Jesus makes it before he returns to his father when he says... All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now again, that's a staggering claim. All authority, the right to rule over absolutely everything, Jesus says, has been given to me. On that basis, go and tell people about me. So friends, by way of some sort of a summary, four things in terms of does God believe in the environment. Firstly, the environment, the world in which we live, all of it, the trees, the birds, the slugs, the mosquitoes, the water, etc. It all comes directly from the hand of God. It is not just a brute fact. It is actually a work of art. That's what it is. All of us. Me, you, the rest of us. So Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he founded it upon the sea. See? It's all his. Because he made it. Humans are part of this whole We're made on the sixth day with the animals and yet we are distinct from. There is not the slightest hint in the Bible of Lynn White's main assertion, which is that the only purpose of nature is to serve our needs. It does that. It's a relationship. But it's actually all about, it's God's earth, we play a part. Humans have often been described long before this century, or even the last one, as stewards We are looking after God's creation. We are vice-regents. We're sort of second in charge in in terms of his absence. And we are allowed to eat both 
fruit, vegetables and animals. Now friends, people don't try to be vegetarians if they want. But I learn about my stewardship, what I'm allowed to do and not do in the world by listening to the owner. And he makes it very clear, I'm allowed to eat meat, which is why I'm going to catch fish tomorrow morning. And, and because they're God's fish, and I'll often say to God, oh Lord of the oceans, just one, one <laughs> keepable fish. I'm not a greedy man, but then the way greed works is once I catch my one monster horse-sized grim, I then say, now Lord, if I had two, <laughs> I could feed more of the family and be the alpha male, etc. But you know, why am I allowed to eat fish? Because it's very clear in the Bible that's part of their purpose. But I, for one, am not keen on this thing where you stick hooks through the back of it and send them out of live bait. Because it's one thing to eat something and kill it quickly. It's another thing to have it... I just think, I would like a dirty big hook put through me and run through the jungle so some lion will eat me. <laughs> kill me and eat me if you must, but don't put a big hook through me. So, I have these ethical issues with some things that people do in fishing. But I'm allowed to, you know, by all means, when I've had some discussions with Hindus at times and particularly with, with um, Hare Krishnas, they will try to pretend that Jesus was a vegetarian and he wasn't. He is Jewish. He has to eat the Passover. He has to eat year by year the Passover lamb. The last time I saw a lamb, it wasn't made of celery. <laughs> so, I don't mind people saying, listen, I think God made all things we shouldn't eat them. You go for that, that's fine. But the Bible simply doesn't run that line of argument. So because God is the owner and I am the steward, I listen to him. I recently watched again Lord of the Rings, Volume 2, and you have the steward of Gondor, I think, who goes off, right, who forgets that he's the steward and doesn't do his job and in the end gets rightly smacked around by the guy with the white stick. <laughs> Stewards can forget. The environment comes from God's hands, we're part of it and yet distinct, we're stewards in it and we have no licence to exploit it and to damage things, people, trees or anything else. That's just a nonsense. Well now, uh, I've got a number of texts here, but before I show them, I'll show you this quick drawing that might help. The crown, of course, represents God, the ruler. I'm not a monarchist, but it'll do for today. And that thing is our planet. And God makes the world and puts us in it under his authority to enjoy the world, to care for the world, to rule it in his, in his place. Now, there's a whole bunch of interesting verses that I wanted to show you to give you a feeling of, sort of, of the vibe of the Bible, which would take just far too long. But there's ones here that indicate that the, what the earth does is it, it shows us of the magnificence of God. The highest heavens of the universe belong to the Lord. He's given the earth to humans. But at the same time, the earth remains the Lord's. It's given to us, but it's still always his, because he made it. He makes it very clear to Israel that the land shall not be sold in perpetuity forever, for the land is mine. That's true of Australia too. Every beast of the forest is mine, says God. All that moves in the field is mine. God just needs to remind us at times. I have a little block of land at Blackheath, that's, uh, that's only on rent. Right? It ultimately belongs to God. They're told they're not to beat up the trees. Right? Don't be too hard on the trees. Uh, Proverbs 12. I've heard atheists on the radio say the Bible has nothing to say about the care of animals. That's just ignorance or a lie. Proverbs 12 says the upright has compassion on his animals. And who do you think started the RSPCA in England? Right? It, was one of, it was Wilberforce and one of his mates. Wilberforce, the same guy, led the drive to get rid of slavery. The RSPCA is a Christian invention. Now, lots of other people work with it now. That's fine. 
But it was started by overtly Christian men who understood that all of God's creation needs to be treated well. Jesus is keen on talking about the birds and how God looks after them, even the small and the unimportant ones, and all sorts of things. Moving right along, you get the vibe. (laughs) But you see, as you well know, there's something wrong with the world. Things are not as they should be. That's our great concern, isn't it? I think we probably wouldn't have thought much about the environment until it went sick. We'd have just assumed it's goodness. But things have got a little bit dodgy over time. Now, I want to discuss with you for a few minutes, what is the problem here? What's actually going wrong that such a beautiful place with such an intelligent species like us left in charge of it should actually cause so much trouble? That's if it keeps on warming up. Now, um, what's the reason for the mess? Lynn White argues that we know who the villain is, it's the Bible. I think it's a bit dodgy. And you can actually show that's not true because all sorts of non-Christian cultures have had environmental catastrophes. One of the things that undid the great uh, civilizations in, in uh, the middle part of the United States, uh, Mexico around that area, was an environmental disaster they did on some of their fields. According to Tim Flannery, and, and certainly a number, quite a bit of recent research has come in in favour of this, although it's argued, it's argued about, the megafauna in Australia was almost certainly brought to an end by the arrival of the Australian Aborigines. They had a way of hunting, they were easy to get, they had lots of meat on them. Certainly they, they became extinct at exactly the same period as we have evidence of the Australian Aboriginal. It happened in New Zealand with the Maori. The Maoris arrived to New Zealand and at least 12 large species of birds were wiped out. Am I saying that to condemn them? No, not at all. That's what humans do. It's what other species do too at times. We simply remove other weaker, slower species. It's just not true to say that the only time you've got environmental disasters is where the Bible has got something to do with it. That's, just a, that's probably... I mean, there have been environmental disasters in China as well, which at that stage had very little to do with Christianity. And there's all sorts of mistakes people make. Genesis 3 will tell us the real heart and soul of it because what it says about humans is this. We're made to live in that relationship with God, but we don't. Uh, this is a slightly odd guy because man doesn't really float around like some sort of asteroid. <laughs> it's just a diagram. You know, what humans say is, look, I don't want to live under the loving authority of God. I, I want to be God. I want to do what I want when I want. Um, so we, we make it very clear to God that he's not allowed to be God because in the Bible sense that means the king, the owner, the one who calls the shots. So we make ourselves God. I want to say to you, this is the source of our problem. It's in Genesis 3, and I think it's written all over human history. This funny business of human beings being utterly magnificent and yet truly horrible at the same time. And it can be the same person in different areas of life. So if you ask the question, why is the environment threatened? Why, why do we do such terrible things to parts of the world? You ask the same question, why do even modern companies at times knowingly endanger the life and health of their employees. They knew what they were doing with with that asbestos they were working with. That's why the company's being sued. Why did they risk, or no, knowingly lead to the death of their employees? How can rulers of some of the poorest countries in the world scam off millions and millions and millions of dollars where their own people are dying? And how can we, for example, live in a country that doesn't seem to care all that much about the fact that today... 25,000 children 
and I'd like to ponder that number, 20, if you went to an ordinary high school, about 1,000 people. Today, 25,000 children will die from easily avoidable situations, either lack of food or lack of clean water. Why do we let that happen? How can we in the West do so little? Why can't women, even in Sydney, walk around safely? Why am I really relieved when my daughters finally get home at night in our beautiful house in Glebe? Why did my laptop get stolen out of my house, even though the house was locked? For that matter, why did my push bike get stolen, locked up at the front of my house? And you've had more serious things than that happen. And why do we hurt each other? Why do we betray friends? Why do we lie? Why do we gossip? See, it's, it's in the end we need to look a little wider than why is the environment a mess. Every area of human life and society is difficult. Even the very best parts of God's creation we can damage. So if we want to look at what's wrong with the environment, it's not good enough just to look at some big company and say, those multinationals, they're involved in it. I'm having to point the finger with the best of them. It's always better to point the finger at someone out there. You have a man like Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was an extraordinarily heroic man, the great writer from Russia who finally was given freedom. He says this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of mankind and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every single human being and who is willing to destroy even his own heart? See, Solzhenitsyn is wiser than many of us are. We think it's them out there. But what the multinational is doing in their company is really much the same as we do in our own private space. Just looking after number one. Just increasing our our pleasure, lessening our pain. The great jungle doctor who studied medicine here and then went off and lived most of his life in Africa and wrote some books. He tells the story of a great chief coming to see him one time and said, Oh, doctor, he says, one, I think he called him, it hurts when I go here and it hurts here. And it hurts here, my body isn't... They went through and ended up working out a broken finger. <laughs> so he thought it was different areas of the body, but it was just the finger. And you see, if you look at almost every area of a, of a species' life and it's going wrong, it's probably something about the species. The environment is just one symptom among many. Because often we can be quite virtuous in one area and quite wicked in another. You will be like this in some areas. The self-righteousness of some people who protest is extraordinary, I think. The single ugliest moment I've experienced in my time at Sydney University was a peace demonstration organised against the Sydney University Regiment. And it was an extraordinary moment to watch the, the, the guys in their soldiers' gear on O'Day, a couple of years ago, standing quite calmly and peacefully and respectfully and the viciousness and the anger and the hate coming from that little group of noisy demonstrators was, I thought, don't they see how unrelated their whole behaviour is to what they say they're on about? Uh, it's very strange. I heard a story on the weekend, of a, a, real, a real life story, of a man who bought a chicken. That's a man selling chickens. Um, <laughs> a man who bought a chicken to go and have a picnic with his, with his lady. Um, when they open the chicken, they find $800 cash neatly folded together. They work out, this is not normal. <laughs> so, so they went back to the chicken shop and, the, and, and they said, listen, this is obviously an accident and what had happened was the guy had counted the money from the till the day before, put all the notes into a bag and somehow that bag got mixed up with other bags 
And, and the, the second time I was saying, I said, you are the most honest man. I didn't know people like you existed. You are so honest. You have such integrity. Let me go and get the local... Let's make a bit of a story of this. And the guy said, no, 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 please don't. Please don't. Because he was a married man and the girl he was with was not his wife. And it's an extraordinary story because here is a man so honest in one area and yet I would suggest in a much more important area, lacking any integrity at all, a deceitful, treacherous wretch. Now that is what humans are like. I am like that. We are like that. Dr. Carl Menninger caused a riot back in the 70s. A clear non-Christian guy, an eminent psychiatrist, wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Sin? Saying everything's explained away now. Standards are lowered. It's not my fault. I was underloved as a child. All that sort of nonsense. He said, we need to get back to the fact that there's something that we do that is wrong at times. Why is the world a mess? Why is the environment a mess? Why do we need so many laws to try and get big companies to behave themselves and even then they get around it? Because they're just like you and I. Sin. An unconscious, deep commitment to me, myself and I. We are like that. So we express it in different areas of life. We get angry at what they do out there and are very self-righteous sometimes in our critique and blind often of our own treachery and selfishness. Thank God he won't let us get away with that. He loves us far too much to let us go on with that sort of hypocrisy. So what he does is exactly what you'd expect him to do plus more. In fact, what you'd expect him to do, I think, is just to ignore us or to blitz us. If I let you stay in my little house, I know I've only got on loan from God up at Blackheath, and I said, just, you know, do what you like, have a great time. And I discovered that instead of just getting wood from the, from the backyard, you began to tear the fence down and, and made the lovely warm fires, not in the fireplace, but in the middle of the lounge room floor <laughs> and that sort of stuff. And I got up there and the place was a bit of a mess. I don't think, I don't think I'd be out of order to get angry, to feel that you really have acted wrongly. I gave you free access to my place, which I'm happy to do for poor students if you need a place in Blackheath. But, you know, I gave you free access to the place. On the understanding that you would at least not wreck it, God gives us this beautiful world, beautiful other people to love, and fundamentally all of us play a part in wrecking it. We will not acknowledge the fact that this is somebody else's world. You don't live in your own world. You don't live in your own body, frankly. All of it comes from the hand of God. So what God calls on us to do, and uh, Acts 17 would be the place I'd like to look if we had more time. God sends out a word to us and he says, In the past God overlooked ignorances, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. What God basically says is, the word repent means to think again. To think perhaps for the first time. To face the obvious truth that even if you pretend to be an atheist, in your guts, you know this world hasn't come out of nothing. Magnificent things like you and your eyeball don't come out of nothing by chance, even given a few thousand years or even a few millions. You know that. You know there's a God. You know you live in someone else's world. You know the problem with it is? It's the really, truly inconvenient truth. The inconvenient truth is that you don't own yourself. 
Everything you touch and see belongs to God. The brain you think with, the mouth you speak with, the hands I'm wobbling around here, all the technology that in our brilliance coming from God we've built, all comes from God. That's a very inconvenient truth. It's a truth about the environment. It will affect the way we treat things. We will engage in intelligent, argued through, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, sustainable development. We will not be ruled by greed, which is our fundamental problem, which the Bible calls idolatry. We will think again about God. We'll acknowledge him to be the owner, the maker, the Lord. We'll think about ourselves again. We'll acknowledge the fact, and here's the depth of the inconvenient truth, you will see God. Lots of people in Australia don't believe in hell. They will, without a doubt. Uh, Some people try to pretend there's no judgment. There is a day of judgment. You will stand before your maker. You will be called to account. And if you've insisted on living in a deceit and a lie, pretending that you don't belong to someone, hurting people who are his offspring and children, damaging the wiles that he's given us and the world he's given us, you will answer. We will answer as a culture. If you work in a company, you'll answer what the company does. We will stand before God. And I, like you, need what only Jesus can give, which is forgiveness. The call is to come back and simply begin to treat God in the way that we should always have done it. So people have often summarised this by saying there remain only two ways to live. One is to keep living as if I'm God. Maybe believing in God, maybe sometimes even praying. But fundamentally, I'm in charge. I'm the wise one. I know what's true. Or on the other hand, you can come back and move across and just go back to being human and say, God, you made me to know you. You made me to live in your world, your way. You are a good God. You are a loving God. You're an artist. You died for me so I could be forgiven. I can trust you. I will trust you. I'll live for you. Now, friends, there are many other questions about the environment which we could and should talk about. We have a limit of time and a limit of brain space. But that'll do for today. The basic point is this. Does God believe in the environment? If I can quote Shakespeare. Duh! Of course he he invented it. Does he like it? It's very good. He's very proud of it. Does he like it when we mistreat it? Absolutely not. Does he call on us to wake up to ourselves? You bet he does. Is he talking to you today? Absolutely. And if you will turn back to him and simply begin to treat him as God, you will find him to be a gracious God. Now, um, there are a number of things you can do in response to this. This is a week of thinking, hopefully. Hopefully you can come to the next two talks which I'm going to come to to learn. Uh, I, need, I need all the help I can get. But you might like to, if you've got any questions or things that I've said that annoy you or main points I've left out, either through ignorance or lack of time, do use the communication card and if you write a thing saying, I'd like to ask Ian, I'll get in contact with you. I only live across the road, I've got nothing to do. So, <laughs> if you'd like to have a cup of coffee, I'll be happy to come across and buy it for you and talk about the issue. But uh, thank you for your time.